Good morning, church. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, last week, missed you guys a lot. Really glad to be back. And uh, last week, Ryan kicked off for us a new series that we're calling DI Yahweh. Kind of a play on words, DIY. What's DIY? Do it yourself. Okay, so if you're God, how do you DIY? You DI Yahweh. How does God get stuff done? It's kind of the question that we're asking. And we're going to be, instead of just kind of focusing in on one, uh, one book or one chapter for this series, we're actually going to skim through a couple of different books and try to get a bigger picture of how God chooses to get stuff done in the, in the world. And so what I'd like for you to do first, and this is not normally where I start, but what I'd like for you to do first is to open up your Bibles to the book of Ezra. If you're using a blue Bible, it's on page 486. The book of Ezra, blue Bibles, 486. And when you get, when you get it there, I'd like for you to hold it up. Now, if you're using a digital format, this illustration isn't going to work so well. But the point, the point is the same. You can see mine. Okay, so when we open up to the book of Ezra, whereabouts are we in the Bible? Almost exactly the middle, right? So when we're in the middle of the Bible, that means we're in the middle of the story. There's a lot that happened beforehand, and there's a lot that's going to happen afterwards. And so as we begin, and as we take a look at this next section of D.I. Yahweh, how does God get stuff done, I want you to know that we're starting in the middle of the story this morning. Last week, Pastor Ryan introduced um, Moses and how God started with Moses, but God's story started even farther back with Abraham. And so Abraham was just a normal Joe Schmo dude, blue-collar guy doing his own thing, didn't know church, didn't know God, like wasn't anything, didn't, nothing special about this guy. God shows up and says, hey, Abraham, Abram was his name, actually, I want you to go somewhere, and I'm going to start something new with you. And so God picks up one guy, he gives him a family, blesses his family, and his family becomes what we call the nation of Israel. Right? The 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel. It's just one family. That's all it is. So God's story goes from all of world history and focuses in on one family in the Middle East. And so we, Ryan talked about last week how those people got delivered, how, how God raised up Moses and started with Moses because that family had gotten put into captivity. They were slaves. They were slave labor. And so Moses shows up and says, you guys ought not to be slaves. You ought to be your own thing. And God wants you to be your own thing. He wants you to worship him. And so he sends Moses to start things off. So Moses leads these people, actually, they're kids. He leads their kids. It's a, it's a long, convoluted story. You'd enjoy it. <clears throat> he leads their kids into the promised land, the land that God set apart for this one family. And he says, I'm going to put you in this land. It's a rich land. It's comfortable. You've got all of the food that you could possibly need. I'm actually going to put you in it. I'm going to let other people build houses, and then you're going to move into them. Like, there's going to be people that you're not going to have to go and clear the land and cut down trees and hack up all the things and big a bit of burn pile. Like, no, you're just going to, you're going to walk in into somebody's yard and somebody's house and you're going to get to move into somebody's house. You're not going to have to make this land your own. It's already inhabited and you're, I'm going to bless you by you not having to do the work of it. And if you, if you go into this land, 
I've taken you out of Egypt, I've taken you out of slavery, and now I'm giving you a home. You get to be autonomous, you get to make your own decisions, you get to participate in the government, you get to participate in worship freely. I've given you all these freedoms, and all I'm asking for you to do is worship me. I'm the God who sets you free. I'm the God who even gave you this land. I'm the reason why anything is going right in your life. All I want for you to do is worship me. And you would think, like if you had had that experience, if you had like followed God around in the desert and you'd got to see like, okay, what are we going to do today, God? And there was like a fire, a pillar of fire, and it just started going like a GPS and you just followed it. And then at nighttime, it was a pillar of cloud and you just followed it around. Like you could actually literally follow God and it was easy because you just, oh, there he is, let's go. Like, you would think if life were that simple, that when you got into a place where God had finally provided everything that you had hoped for, you could just be like, well, of course I'll serve and worship you. But they didn't. Actually, they constantly rejected God. They constantly served other gods and, and, and made up stuff for, for themselves to worship. And God got frustrated. He says, look, 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 I brought you here. I'm the one who blessed you. I'm like, and you're, you're, you're cheating on me? That's why we read in Jeremiah chapter 2 this morning that God had brought out the children of Israel and he had given them all these blessings. He had asked, just worship me. And they said, no, we're going to make our own thing. Like this rock here, I'm going to pray to that because that seems like it's going to work better for me. And it broke God's heart. And so God says, all right, look, you guys have messed all this up. I'm going to give you a warning shot across the bow. Like there's going to be these Assyrians that are going to come in and they're going to take half of y'all away, actually more than half. They're going to come and take you guys out and they're going to carry you off to Assyria. And those of you guys that are left, like that's your warning sign. You should know that I'm serious about this and I want you to worship me. And they just kept like, no, we're just going to do our own thing, God. Like Yahweh, you do your thing and we'll do our thing. And it ain't it's nothing. That's why we read in Jeremiah 26. Because God is saying, okay, for those of you guys that are left, he calls them Judah. For those of you guys that are left, I want you to know, you're going to go into a different land. I'm going to raise up the king of Babylon, and he's going to take you guys out. You're going into timeout. You watched, you watched, your, you watched your brothers get captive by Assyria, and now you're going to be taken away by the king of Babylon. So when you go into timeout, this is what I want you to do. What did he say in chapter 26? He said, just raise a family. Live your life. Go to work. Make money. Pray for the city that you're in, because as the city that you're in prospers, so will your family prosper. You're going to be in timeout so long that many of you will be buried there. Seventy years. And it was related to the amount of times that they had skipped a festival uh, called Jubilee, which was all about, you know, acknowledging that God owned everything, but I don't want to get too far into it because I've already gone too long. I just want you to know that we're jumping into the middle of this story and that God has already been trying to work together and everybody now is in timeout. And so sometimes when we see people in timeout, we're like, well, why is God so mean? Except that God said over and over, hey, hey, cut it out. Worship me. Cut it out. Worship me. And they were like, no, we don't want to. He's like, fine, I'm going to send you in timeout. And then they wanted to turn around and be mad that they got sent into timeout. But we don't know anybody like that. We don't have any children that act that way. Let's get to the text because this is actually really interesting and I'd like to read it together with you. We're going to be in Ezra again. It's chapter one. I'm going to begin in verse one. And I'm going to try to cover the first three chapters and I've got to go faster than I've been going already if we're going to get done today. So we're going to be in Ezra, and before I speed off into the sunset, let's pause and pray. 
God, you're good. Lord, you have shared your story with us and we're grateful for it. Lord, help us not to be in such a hurry that we run past you and what it is that you want for us to hear. Lord, would your word ring out clear and true like a bell cutting through the rest of the noise of our life? Would you help us to focus in on that and any distractions, any white noise just to fall away? Lord, we've gathered together in your presence to study your word, to read your word together, and so we pray that you would unite us together in your spirit and teach us your divine wisdom. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the book of Ezra opens in this way. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the, <clears throat> that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And here's the writing, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Let's pause there real quick. I want you to see what happens here. See, Babylon comes and takes Judah away into timeout. It is so long that they're in timeout that Babylon gets taken over by Persia. So now they're in Babylon, but it's owned by the Persians. And so King Cyrus is the king of the Persians. And King Cyrus is actually a really interesting guy. This is the fascinating thing about the Bible is it actually happened in historical events, and we can look at it and go, oh, like those things happened. So Cyrus actually made lots of decrees, and he would write them on uh, cylinders, stamp them out, and send them out so that everything is... There's actually a copy of a cylinder in uh, the British Museum, and there's a copy of the copy in the United Nations. And as you read this text of Scripture, know that on that cylinder is almost verbatim the exact same decree that Cyrus made. Our scripture records accurately what happened in history. The only difference is this. The one, that's in, um, the one that's in the British Museum and the copies in the United Nations is actually says, Marduk has moved me. Marduk is the name of a Babylonian god. So actually, Cyrus was in the habit of doing this. See, Cyrus is making a thing, and he says, the Lord, which uh, if you see Lord all in caps, that's code word for Yahweh. That's God's personal name. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build whatever house is in, yeah, in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. So he says, look, Yahweh has told me that I'm supposed to send people back to rebuild it. And this other one, he says, Marduk told me that I'm supposed to send people back to rebuild it. So he knows that Babylon has gone over and captured all these people and brought them home. He says, look, I don't want to feed all these people. Send them home. And so he gets a copy and paste. He says, this is my decree. Make it look like I get all the credit. And I'm going to send it out wherever you need to go. Like, here's your ticket home. And so this uh, pagan king writes these words almost sarcastically. Like, 
the Lord who rules in Jerusalem, even though he's given me all the kingdoms, like he told me to send people out and send them back and, and, and I'm going to provide for it. Okay? Okay. The thing is, he doesn't actually have any fear or reverence for Yahweh. He doesn't actually believe that Yahweh is Lord in Jerusalem or anywhere else. He doesn't believe that he's the God of heaven the way he describes him. He's just a guy who's saying, well, I, you know, I'm the political guy in charge, so whatever needs to happen needs to happen. So it happens. But what he didn't know is that first verse. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. See, in his writing, he didn't know that God had already communicated to Jeremiah, which we read, that Israel was going to be in time out for 70 years and that the 70 years was up during the time that Cyrus was king. So Cyrus thought, I've got this great immigration policy. I'm going to immigrate everybody out of my country. <laughs> and, and it's just going to solve a bunch of problems for me. But he didn't, what he didn't know was that that was God, part of God's plan years and years and years and years and years before in order for God to accomplish what he was trying to do in Jerusalem. So is it, do you see what I'm trying to show you there? It's, it's not, it's not if, you, if you're not familiar with some of the history, it's not really clear in the text, but like God is doing something. He's, he's actually coordinating circumstances to accomplish something of his own. He's using a secular ruler, a guy who is only concerned about his own power and authority to accomplish God's will, Yahweh, I think is fascinating. And that's actually the big idea for our sermon this morning is that God prepares circumstances to build teams fit for his work. And the circumstances that God prepares don't have to be people who are willing. The circumstances that God is preparing doesn't have to be people who acknowledge and worship Yahweh as the true God. They don't have to trust Jesus for Jesus to use him to accomplish what Jesus wants. Verse 5, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were, all who were about them and aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. So they're like, okay, God is moving me. I want to go home. I want to see God's, uh, the worship of Yahweh restored. I want to go. And all their neighbors say, okay, let me pay for your passport. Let me pay for this. Let me pay for that. They're giving them silver and gold as they go out. Verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. See, when, when, uh, when Judah got sent into time out, one of the things that happened was the army of Babylon destroyed the temple. When, when they destroyed the temple, they said, oh, there's a bunch of shiny stuff in here. Let's take it home. And so they ransacked and took everything that God had specifically made for worship of him, took it back to Jerusalem, or took it back to Babylon, out of Jerusalem. And some really interesting stories about stuff that happens with that that I don't have time to get into, but God, God knows what's his. You see that? So Nebuchadnezzar took it away. Cyrus says, hey, we need to send that back. Like, we just need to get rid of this stuff. And then God knows what's his. Verse 8, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought out these who were in charge of Merideth, the treasurer who counted them out in Shesbazar, and he gives the count of them. Exactly, precisely. Everything that was taken went back. 
So it can be taken away by a conquering king who thinks he rules the world and shoved in his treasury and counted as something that gives him glory. And God can say, nope, that's still mine and I will bring it back home where it belongs. I think it's fascinating. The history here is really interesting. And God's people are moved by God, whoever stirred up in his heart that he wanted to go. Now, the thing is interesting in chapter 2 that we're getting ready to go into is actually a list of names. And later, a, a later writer, his name was Nehemiah, and we're going to talk about him in a couple of weeks, but he's got a different list of names. Nehemiah's list of names is actually shorter. And what I think happened was when Cyrus issues this decree and says, y'all can go home and rebuild the temple, everybody like signs up on the list. They're out in the foyer writing their name. Like, I want to bring, I'm going to bring dessert for, for the, the cookout. Like, we're going to have a great time. So they put their name on the list. And then when it came time to leave, they're like, I don't know. I got to move that couch outside and I don't really want to carry it all the way over there. And it's too nice to just leave here. You know, maybe I'll just stick around. The Spirit of God moved people to register to leave, but not everybody went. See, if God prepares circumstances to build teams fit for his work, what if God is working in our world outside of just church stuff? What if the dominion and the power and the authority of God isn't limited to what God can do through Grace Church or through Good News Church or through uh, Grandview Baptist Church down the road? Like, what if, it's, what if God's work in the world isn't just limited to what God can do with a couple of churches? But what if he actually appoints the leaders of our country? What if he actually has the ability to use evil men who have no interest in him to accomplish his work in the world? What if God is working in our world outside of church stuff, even when it doesn't look like what's happening is going to bring honor to him? Because God prepares circumstances to build teams for his work. So let's look at the team. Would you look at chapter 2? These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried captive to Babylonia. So a lot of names. The king of Babylon took them away, and this is who they are. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Serahiah, Rehaliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. So uh, if you need to name a kid this year, like here's a good list of names for you. <clears throat> There's three here I just want to point out to you. Uh, the first is, excuse me, I lost my place. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was, ended up being like a governor. He's the guy who's trying to get stuff done. Jeshua was the priest. He was the guy who was supposed to make the actual sacrifices and offerings to God. And Nehemiah, I just want to point out that that's not the Nehemiah who writes the book later. Like, it's going to get, you're going to be like, wait, I thought we already introduced Nehemiah. No, this is actually a different guy. Same name, different guy. All right? So that's all you need to know. But So God sends a governor and God sends the priest because what are they going to do? They're going to restore worship of Yahweh. So they need somebody who can keep people on task. And they need somebody who can actually offer the offerings. So God raises up leaders to go, um, to go back and rebuild. And then there's servants. And I'm going to skip through. We're, we're going to 
step a stone over here so I don't have to read all these names. You can read them on your own time. It'll be edifying for you. Read them out loud. It, it, it helps, actually. <clears throat> and they are important, but not for what we're doing this morning. <clears throat> the number of the men of the people of Israel, the end of verse 2. Then down in verse 36, the priests. In verse 40, the Levites. In verse 43, the temple servants. In verse 55, the sons of Solomon's servants. So those are all the people who are going to do the work of the temple. There's the priests who actually do the sacrificing. There's the Levites who actually take care of the different elements. Because if you're slaughtering a lot of bulls, guess what? There's a lot of blood to clean up. And there's a whole like group of people that that's their job is to clean the blood. So like you got priests making the sacrifice, Levites who are cleaning up. You've got people who are guarding the gates and different temple servants. And all these people are coming back because God wants to restore worship to himself. If he's going to restore people to himself, restore worship of himself, he needs the right people in the right jobs doing the things. And here's something that's fascinating to me, absolutely fascinating to me. Um, look in verse 59, chapter 2, verse 59. I'll find it on the page here. Um, the following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emer. Those are just the name of their towns. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, it gives their names. And verse 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and Thummim. So here's what happened. People came and said, look, I want to serve as a priest. I know my, my, my grandfather's grandfather, grandfather, grandfather was a priest, and I, can, and I want to serve. And they said, okay, well, show us your family tree. Give us your genealogy. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't have a record of it. And they're like, well, here's the thing. God told us how to do this, and if we're going to go back and restore the worship of God, like... Right at the very beginning, if we let you do this and it turns out you're not of the right lineage, like we've ruined the whole thing at the start. So there are people who genuinely come who want to serve God and they say no. Sometimes it's appropriate for leadership to look at people who want to serve and say, I don't think you're the right person for this. Not because it's sinful, but it's because it's not going to work out for everybody else. If God said only Levites can do this job and you can't prove to me that you're a Levite, like, it's going to be a problem. And here's the thing. If God can control circumstances so that the king, of, uh, king Cyrus of Persia thinks that it's his idea to send the people home, don't you think that he could produce some paperwork to show that these people were supposed to be serving as Levites? So all I'm saying is sometimes... You have a really great idea, and you go, to, you go to the leadership and say, I really want to do this, and maybe sometimes they'll just say, no, I don't think that's a good fit. I don't think that's going to work. And that's okay. Look at 64 and 70. 64 through 70. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,000, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 760, or 36, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on this site. They gave money. 
According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 darics of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. So people showed up and said, you guys need money, here's some money. Now the priests, the Levites, the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. What I think is interesting is that the singers went with them. And this is probably, I get excited about this because I like singing. But if you think about it, when God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, they walked through the Red Sea, they got to the other side, and what happened? They sang. Moses wrote a song. We sang a version of it this morning. Praise the Lord, our mighty warrior. God has led us out of Egypt. He's led us out of slavery. He has conquered our enemies. He's a mighty warrior. He's strong, and we want to trust in him. And the song faded. They're like, maybe God did that, but I just want to do my own thing until they end up in timeout. And when they're in timeout, there's a verse in Jeremiah that says that they won't sing anymore. The, the, the Babylonians are saying, hey, won't you sing us a song from your old land? I'm like, no, we can't do that. We're in time out. Like, we don't want to sing anymore. And the fact that there's singers here that are going back, like, they get to restore the song. They get to come in and say, guys, praise the Lord. He's a mighty warrior. He's the glorious one. By his hand, we stand in victory. And by his name, we overcome. God restores worship of himself in the hearts of his people. By bringing the team together. Everybody has a different role. Some people lead in singing. Some people are offering sacrifices. Some people are cleaning up. Some people are running the government. I suspect that some of these other names that we don't know a lot about, I suspect that those are construction workers. Because if you're going to build something, you need people who know how to make sure it continues to stand after you've built it. It builds a team. God prepares circumstances to build teams fit for his work. So how are you stirred to serve Jesus? Like we've seen that God moved in the hearts of people and and many of them signed their name up on the the registration to leave. That God stirred in their hearts. Like what what is the thing that is stirred in you? What is the gift that you have to bring? Because some of these people had a lot of money to lay on the table. They had been blessed in Babylon. They had done exactly what God said. They had prayed for their city and they had worked and they had earned and they had something to bring back to offer to God to make sure the work could get done. But not everybody had that gift. Each of them had their own gift and had something to bring to serve God. So how are we stirred to serve Jesus? What is the gift that God has entrusted to us to share? And are we willing not only to sign our names on the registration, but to walk out the front door? There's a wise man once wrote that it's a dangerous business walking out your front door. Let's look at what happens in chapter 3 here. When the seventh month came, The children of Israel were in the towns, and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Everybody comes into Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, with his kinsmen, 
And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear of them was on, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings to it. Burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. So here's what happens. They go into a decimated city. They go up to a ruined temple and they build an altar. One of the things that God was very specific about when he gave construction instructions, he said, when you build an altar to me, don't cut the rocks. We like cinder block because it's square and it's all the same size and you can just and it makes a nice little pattern. It's, it's very formal. It's structurally very sound. But God said, I don't want you to use cinder block. I don't want you to use cut stone. When you build an altar to me, I want you to use unshaped rock. Looks like that. And you say, so what? <laughs> like, why does that matter, God? He says, look, when you work with unshaped stone, not everything fits together exactly the way it's supposed to. There are gaps and there are crevices. Not every stone is the same size, but every stone in the end has its place. So they walk into a ruined city. They walk up to a decimated temple and they build a pile of rocks with a flat top on it so they can offer sacrifices to God. So in my head, the way that I imagine this is that the altar doesn't look that much different from the rubble around it. It's uncut rocks. But God says, when, you, when I build something, I, don't, I do it organically. I don't make it perfect. And so when God says in the New Testament, I'm building you into my temple, we like to think, well, I don't have the same gifts as other people. I don't have the same abilities as other people do. God might not be able to use me because I'm just not as strong or I'm not as, as, as wise. Like, I'm not good enough for God to use me. And God says, I want you to build my altar with uncut stones. I'm making you into my temple with uncut stones. You have a place in the story that I'm telling, whatever your shape may be. And so God has prepared circumstances to build a team of people fit for his work. But it doesn't look like how we would imagine it to look. When God restores the worship of it, we think, okay, we've, we can't actually be, have arrived anywhere. All they did was build an altar. There's no temple. The city's still in ruins. He says, no, 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 you are offering sacrifices to me with a broken and contrite heart. You have returned to me the way that I asked you to. You are worshiping me in the place that I placed you. I have prepared circumstances to build a team fit for my work. Serve me. And they do it. Like that's really the incredible part of what's happening here in Ezra is they do it. We're going to talk about some challenges that they face because if you've ever done a DIY project, you know that it takes five times as long as you plan for it to. We're going to get to the challenges, but do you see where they started? Do you see who was the catalyst? All along. Cyrus thought it was him, but it wasn't him. 
So if God is doing that, where do you fit? What is the gift that you bring? Because God prepares circumstances in your life to build a team fit for his work. Let's pray together.